Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. That'll be our sermon text for this morning. And uh, if you've been with us for a few weeks, you know we've been working our way through the book of 1 Peter. And so we've just been working section by section, verse by verse through the book. And we come to uh, chapter 2, verses 18 through 25 this morning. Before we uh, read that together, let's pray together. Our Father, we do come to receive from you, to receive from your word, uh, your truth and your grace. And so we pray, Father, that you would open our hearts to those things this morning, that you would uh, give me uh, wisdom and words to say, uh, but most of all, that you would be at work by your spirit in us, uh, opening hearts and minds to receive what you have to say to us in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it If when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Well, yesterday, uh, Deborah and I ran the Aruna Run. It's a race that's set up as a fundraiser to raise money to free women from the sex slave industry in South Asia. Now, before you think I'm somehow tooting my own horn, uh, I should say my only goal of the race was to get through it without hurting myself. (laughs) And I actually had no idea that the race was a fundraiser when I signed up for it. And actually, I didn't even sign up for it. I was signed up for it. (laughs) But I bring it up for two reasons. And the one is to highlight that slavery is just as big an issue today as it has ever been, if not bigger. And two, as we come to our text this morning, we're going to have to wrestle with some hard questions, some of which, maybe many of which, I won't actually answer. Peter's words to us this morning begin, servants, be subject to your masters. And I want to say right away that that neither Peter nor the rest of the New Testament endorse slavery as we understand it, either in the ancient world or today. This is not an, an endorsement of any oppressive system of slavery. But the question is, if that's not what it is, then what is it? 
Well, I think we can fairly summarize what Peter is saying like this in this whole text. That we who worship the suffering servant Jesus are called to live lives of suffering service for Jesus. We who worship the suffering servant Jesus are called to live lives of suffering service for Jesus. Now, that may make you feel uncomfortable, but I'm not really sure how else to put it. The call of the Christian life for all Christians is a call to a life of suffering and to a life of service. That is God's call on your life. Now, if that sounds a bit radical, remember how Jesus defines discipleship. You are to take up your cross and follow him. Now, the cross is nothing if it's not a symbol of suffering. And for Jesus, the cross was an act of service. So the call to discipleship is a call to take up our cross and follow Jesus. And therefore, it is a call to to live as suffering servants in the world. And our outline this morning just builds on this. You can find it in the back of your bulletin if you want to follow along. There are, are four points that really make up one sentence Because Christ suffered, be subject while enduring sorrow in Christ's power. Because Christ suffered, be subject while enduring sorrow in Christ's power. So first, because Christ suffered. I don't initially like the thought of this any more than you do. My idea of the happy life has never been serve others while undergoing hardship. In fact, there are certain things that I never expected to be themes of my ministry, and I really think the two biggest themes of my preaching, aside from Christ and the gospel and grace, which I expected, uh, the two most unexpected themes have been suffering and submission. Suffering, because it is so prevalent in life, though we spend so much of our time trying to avoid, deny, or assuage it, or else inflict it on others. Submission, because it is so prevalent in life, though we spend so much of our time trying to avoid, deny, or escape it, or else place others under it. But it shouldn't be surprising, however, that suffering and submission are such central themes to gospel ministry, because we worship the suffering servant. How can we ever talk about the gospel, therefore, if suffering and service are not central to our teaching? And how can we ever live in light of the gospel if suffering and service are not central to our lives? We worship the suffering servant and so are called to live lives of suffering service. Now, if you don't like the idea that suffering and service are central to discipleship, you're you're not the first person to resist this idea. In fact, Peter didn't like the idea either. The first time uh, Jesus taught the twelve apostles about the cross, that he was going to suffer and be killed and then rise, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, that shall never happen to you. Peter didn't want to follow a suffering servant. He wanted to follow a conquering king. And yet, by the time Peter was writing this letter, he had come a long way. Look at verses 21 to 23 in the middle of our text. Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. 
He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now, this entire section is really uh, replete with quotes and echoes from Isaiah chapter 53, which we read earlier, which is this great hymn to the suffering servant in the book of Isaiah. But what Peter has to say is actually pretty clear. Christ suffered for you. And in that suffering, he modeled how to handle suffering. It's not all he was doing in his suffering. We'll talk more about that in a moment, but that is one of the things that he did in his suffering. What is it that he was modeling for us? How was it that his suffering was an example? Well, first, his suffering was not his fault. Uh, quoting uh, Isaiah 53, 9, Peter says, Jesus didn't sin, nor was he deceptive. You know, sometimes we suffer because we do stupid things. But Peter says, not so Jesus. His suffering was not his fault. It wasn't because of his sin. It wasn't because he lied or committed some other transgression. Second, Jesus did not respond to his suffering in kind. Verse 23 says, when he was reviled, he did not revile. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. Now, I don't know about you, but my knee-jerk reaction when I'm threatened or harmed or spoken bad of is to respond in kind. I do not love my enemies as I ought, and even with my friends, my default is often to repay hurt for hurt. Uh, Even this week, I was with a a dear brother and a friend, and I I felt threatened, and I responded in unkindness. It was wrong. It was unchristlike. It should not have been so. It was not following the steps of Jesus. But Christ's suffering was not his fault, and he does not respond in kind. Rather, third, what does he do? He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus was frequently spoken against, eventually arrested, falsely accused, faced a sham trial, and condemned to a Roman cross for claiming to be the Son of God, the King of Israel, which, of course, he was. And when Jesus was arrested, Peter still didn't get it. You may remember uh, Peter, when Jesus was arrested, he he drew his sword to defend his master. And Jesus replied, Peter, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Meaning, Peter, don't you think I could force my way out of this if I so chose? But Jesus didn't feel the need to fight his way out because he trusted his father in heaven. He knew his father judges justly. He knew his father would not let an injustice go. He knew that even if he died, his father would vindicate him. And so he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. See, this is the example of Jesus. He he, he is undergoing unjust suffering, not his fault. He did not respond in kind, but rather he trusted his father in heaven. Now, you might wonder, okay, that's fine, but how do we know that that was actually the right course of action? Jesus entrusted himself to the Father. He faced death. And the Father vindicated him in the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is the Father's just judgment that Jesus was in the right the whole time. Which means that Jesus' resurrection vindicates his method of facing suffering. Not responding in kind, but entrusting himself to his Father. 
And so let me, let me even ask you already, as we begin to think about this and the way we deal with uh, unjust suffering, are there, are there places in your life where you feel wronged or hurt? Maybe it was a, a moment of insensitivity by a friend. Maybe it was a lifetime of cruelty by a family member. Maybe it's just the, the daily rudeness uh, of a coworker or a classmate. How do, you, how do you deal with that? How do you respond? How should you respond? Well, whatever else we might say, and there, there is definitely a lot more we could say, we are to respond by following in the footsteps of Jesus. Not responding in kind, but enduring hardship. But let's keep going. Because there's more. So first, Christ suffered for us. That's what uh, theologians call the, the indicative of the gospel. Uh, that Jesus came, he suffered, he died, and was vindicated for us. But from the indicatives of Scripture flow the imperatives. That is, from the facts of the gospel flow the instructions for the Christian life. And so verse 21 says, uh, Because Christ also suffered for you, to this you have been called. And so point one is because Christ suffered. Point two is, is be subject. Verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, we come to verses like these, I think, and we, we often balk for at least two reasons, maybe more. Uh, first, we feel like they may be endorsing slavery, and that doesn't seem right. Uh, what is Peter saying? Why is he saying it? And second, we just don't like the idea of submission, period, regardless of who is being called to submit. But let's uh, look briefly at three questions about these instructions, which will help us understand what Peter is getting at. Uh, whom is Peter addressing? To what is he calling them? And why? So whom, what, and why? First, whom? Servants. Uh, it's a loaded word, to be sure. Uh, because of that, it's important to clarify what Peter is and is not saying when he addresses servants. Uh, first, Peter, is, again, is not endorsing slavery as we understand it in the modern world. That is not the system that existed in the Roman world, and so it wouldn't have been in Peter's mind at all. But second, neither is Peter endorsing servitude in his own day. Uh, it's true that slavery in that day was actually not quite what we imagine. Um, you could actually be a white-collar slave, uh, which sort of flips categories on their heads for us. And oftentimes, though certainly not always, slaves apparently were financially better off than free people, which is how many of them ended up in slavery. They sold themselves into slavery. But we shouldn't paint too rosy a picture. Uh, that would be like saying all employed people in the 21st century receive a livable wage in a safe work environment, which would be absurd. But the point is, one might generally address employees of all kinds in the 1st or the 21st century without being seen to endorse everything that happens in every workplace. And that's what Peter's doing here. Uh, he, he isn't doing cultural commentary. He is saying, okay, Christians, uh, here is how you are to act in this situation in which you find yourself. If you have an authority over you, uh, no matter how that happened, whether you like it or not, here is how you are to act. And this really just follows from what we saw last week in verse 13, where Peter says, be subject to every human institution. I am sure that Peter would agree with Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 
when he says this, Paul says if, if one is stuck as a, as a bondservant, he or she should not be concerned about it. But if one can gain their freedom, he or she should take that opportunity. Notice what's going on there. What, what is the main concern? That's 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, what is the main concern? Not how can you per- uh, personally fulfill yourself and achieve your maximum potential in some worldly sense. But Paul is concerned with how can you honor Christ where you are. Right? That, that's so important. If we set our hearts on self-fulfillment, we say, how can Paul possibly say uh, that they might stay as servants? How can Paul uh, be okay with such a thing? Well, for one thing, this was not a matter of simply changing jobs. He wasn't saying, oh, you need to stop working at that job because you're, you, you know, you're, it, it's like slavery and you need to, to move to a different job. It wasn't quite that easy. It was a matter of overturning a whole culture, and one could not simply leave the life of a servant, uh, though one could buy themselves out of it at times. Since one couldn't get out, Paul says, don't be concerned. Again, we think, what? Why not? Why, why wouldn't they be concerned? Well, Paul's answer would be, you can serve God just as easy, easily as a bondservant as you can a freed man. And yet he also says, if you can gain your freedom, by all means do it. See, he's walking this fine line between saying, wherever you are, you serve God there. And yet, if you can better your situation, by all means do it. See, Paul is saying, if if you can become free, become free and serve God with your freedom. But if you cannot become free, serve God in your servitude. And this is hard for us to hear, again, because I think our our focus is on self-fulfillment and not living to the glory of God. With Paul, Peter says, you who find yourself as servants, be subject to your masters. Okay, but we might wonder, okay, that's fine for Peter in the first century, how do those words then apply today to us in 21st century America? Well, I think the application of these words really is specifically to anyone under authority in the economic sphere of life. And it would not be wrong for us to read this as employees be subject to your employers. Employees are under authority in the sort of the economic sphere as opposed to civil or familial so whom is Peter addressing here? Those under authority. Those under authority within the economic sphere of life. To what is he calling those under authority? Well, he's calling them to be subject or to submit. Now, as we talked about last week, uh, this word in Scripture means placing oneself under the authority of another. The book of Luke tells us Jesus submitted to or was in submission to his earthly parents. And God is now subjecting or submitting the nations under his feet through, under Jesus' feet through the gospel. And so notice the call here, servants, place yourself under the authority of your masters. That is, willingly, actively submit to their leadership, as did Jesus with his parents, and as we do to Jesus. Both of which, by the way, demonstrate that this is not an intrinsically dehumanizing thing that Peter is calling them to. It's actually an intrinsically human thing that Jesus, who took on flesh, then submitted to his parents. And that we, the church, are called to submit to Christ. Again, if Peter lived and wrote today, I think he would have said, employees, accept the authority of your employers. And when you put it that way, of course, 
And, and that is what I think Peter is saying. I, I hope that seems obvious. Now, one difference might be that, that many servants in Peter's day would have been stuck in their dead-end job. Or maybe that's not so different. And so if you find yourself under authority, submit to those over you. That's what Peter is saying. Remembering Christ, who willingly placed himself under authority, his parents, the high priest, the Pontius Pilate even, and following in his steps, entrust yourself to your Father in your work. So whom is Peter addressing? He's addressing those under authority, not in relation to the civil government or to the home, but those in the economic sphere of life, those who have a boss, and, of course, who likely could not get out of their situation And to what is he calling them? He's calling them to place themselves under that authority willingly. Finally, we we have to ask the question, why? What what is to be their motive? Well, Peter's already said in verse 13, for the Lord's sake. Or in verse 19, he'll say, being mindful of God. But here in verse 18, he simply says, with all respect. Now, this could mean show respect to those over you, Show respect to your boss. Show respect to those in authority. It could also mean, uh, it's the same word, it could also mean with all fear, meaning the fear of God. That's the way Peter used the word in the previous verse, in verse 17, when he said, fear God. And now he says, servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. The point here then would be your submission to those over you is an expression of your fear of the Lord. This is the way Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 6 and in Colossians chapter 3. Just a a few quotes from there. Paul says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, and as bond servants of Christ, rendering service as to the Lord and fearing the Lord, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. You are serving the Lord Christ. And of course, here's the the point, your service in whatever capacity you are serving, whether you're flipping burgers or selling insurance or designing logos, you are serving the Lord Christ. Be subject in in the fear of the Lord, in your awareness of God, in your sense of the, the sovereignty and the grace and the presence of your Father in heaven. That's how we serve. Whatever you do, you are not serving men, you are serving Jesus. Serve, therefore, as if you were serving Jesus, because you are. This is your motive for serving with all fear. That is, you you are serving God in what you do. We serve others as an expression of our service of God. We submit to earthly authorities as an expression of our submission to the authority of heaven. So because Christ Suffered, Peter says, be, be subject while enduring sorrow. Point three, our, our natural, God-given, I think, tendency when confronted with pain is to pull back, to recoil, to, to run away and, and lick our wounds, or to fight back and lash out. Peter calls us neither to pull back nor to fight back, but to endure Now, this goes against uh, one of our assumptions that the misuse of authority uh, negates authority. But that's, that's not actually what Peter says. Verses 19 through 21. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. 
For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. The teaching of these verses actually, I think, is pretty simple, but maybe easy to uh, caricature. And so there are a few clarifications that need to be made to avoid misunderstanding. Uh, The teaching is this. God looks with favor on his children when they endure unjust suffering. But there is no such value to self-inflicted suffering. Right? Uh, it pleases God when we endure unjust suffering, as did Christ. But if we do wrong and suffer for it, it, it doesn't have the same value in God's eyes. There are three important qualifications to this. First, uh, we're not called to pursue sorrow, but to endure it. There's a big difference. Uh, nowhere in Scripture are we called to pursue suffering, but everywhere we are called to endure, to persevere. Following the the example of Christ does not mean we intentionally put ourselves in harm's way, but we are willing to do what is necessary in the service of God, even when it involves suffering and difficulty. And certainly, we need to say, right, self-harm would be the farthest thing from Peter's mind. Uh, He's talking to people who are suffering unjustly. They, They can't do anything about it. But they are suffering unjustly, and he's calling them to endure, mindful of God. Notice, by the way, the the word one in verse 19. It's, It's such a simple, small word, you might skip over it. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures. One endures sorrows while suffering justly. And I think Peter's point in using that word, that very generic word, is uh, is to not limit these words to servants, but to say it pleases God when anyone who suffers unjustly endures. When any one of his children, in whatever situation you find yourself, when you suffer unjustly and endure, that is pleasing to your Father. And so we're not called to pursue sorrow, but we are called to endure it. Second, we're not called to just suck it up. But actually, we can escape sorrow and should escape sorrow when we can. We endure it when we cannot. So Peter is not saying, just just stick it out. Don't speak up. He's not saying, right, if your husband is beating you and your kids, you should just stay and submit. That is not what Peter is saying. How do I know that that's not what Peter or anywhere else in the Bible teaches? Well, first, you have the example of the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul was frequently, you may remember as you read through the book of Acts, Paul was frequently beaten and oppressed. But whenever he could get out of it, he did. Uh, Whenever he could get out, he did. At one point, he was about to be flogged, and he said to the person in charge, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Paul appealed to the civil law to get out from under unjust suffering. And we should do the same. But more than the example of Paul, we actually have the example of Jesus. You know, you read through the Gospels, and sometimes you skip over little things. You just don't notice them. But multiple times throughout Jesus' ministry, the crowds were ready to kill him, stone him, throw him off a cliff. And we're told Jesus passed through their midst in Luke 4. Or he hid himself 
in John 8, or he escaped from their hands in John 10. And so we have the example of both Paul and our Lord Jesus avoiding unjust suffering when possible. And so Peter is not saying, look, just suck it up. He is saying, if if I could spell it out, he's saying, when you are unable to avoid unjust suffering, don't respond in kind, but endure mindful of God. And so we're not called to pursue sorrow, but to endure it. And we're not called to to simply uh, suck it up or stick it out, but but escape if, if we can, but endure when we cannot. And third, our suffering, it's important to say, does not earn God's favor in some absolute sense. Uh, Peter says, so, this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrow. Now that phrase, gracious thing, is, well, when I first read it, and first and second and third, I just kept thinking, what in the world does that mean? This is a gracious thing. It's an interesting phrase. It's literally, this is grace. This is grace, which could mean at least one of two things. It could mean this is what grace looks like in your life. That is, you you know God's grace is at work in your life when you were able to endure unjust suffering. Only by God's grace does that happen. But more likely, Peter is probably thinking of the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 6, where Jesus uses that same word, uh, which has multiple meanings, to mean benefit or credit. So first, in Luke 6, Jesus tells us to love our enemies and to pray for those who abuse us. And then he says, if you love those who love you, what benefit? That's actually the same word, the word grace. What benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit? Again, the word grace is that to you. For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit? Once again, the same word, charis. What credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So Peter here is thinking about heavenly rewards. Uh, Now God's love is a free gift in the gospel. We cannot earn his love or favor. Grace is a gift. We are declared right with God by faith alone. No act of obedience or disobedience can change that fact. But that doesn't mean that we cannot please God. When you, as God's child, by grace, do things which are pleasing to him, he is pleased. God delights in the the obedience of his children. Even our fumbling, bumbling, baby steps of obedience please our Father. And isn't that great? Right? That 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 our our struggles and our trials, that, that pleases our Father as we pursue obedience to Him. And why is that? Well, because God delights in His Son. God delights in Jesus. The Father delights in the Son, which means when when we are conformed to Christ's image, the Father delights in us. And Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example. And so when we suffer for him, mindful of God, fearing the Lord, Peter says this is a gracious thing, meaning this finds favor with God, meaning in this the Father delights 
because his son is seen in us. So when we love our enemies, when we pray for those who persecute us, when we do good to those who badmouth us, when we endure unjust suffering of any kind without paying back in kind, we are following the example of Jesus, who rather than pay us back for our sin, endured suffering, being put to death by the hands of sinful men according to the plan of the Father. Christ's suffering is our example in this. And of course, Christ's resurrection is our hope because his suffering did not end with him in the grave, but with him risen from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, and so, and so we can love our enemies, entrusting justice into the hands of our Father, knowing that he will put all things right in his timing. Now, there's one more thing that that we need to say about the gospel in light of all this. And so, because Christ suffered, Peter says, be subject to earthly authorities while enduring sorrow in Christ's power. Last point, in Christ's power. Following in the footsteps of Jesus seems impossible because, of course, it is. This is not something that we can do in our own strength or in our own power. In fact, as with everything else in God's law, we are unable to keep it in our strength. To think about loving our enemies in any positive way or even just enduring suffering without retaliation is a tall order. It is not what we do by nature. And Peter's just not talking about restraining your body, but but really entrusting in your heart, entrusting God with your whole heart. Where does such power come from? Well, Peter tells us in verses 24 and 25. He says, He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. First, Peter says, Jesus bore our sins. That is, Jesus took our sins upon himself. Jesus is the true sacrificial lamb bearing the sins of the world. And he did that in his body on the cross. That's what the cross is all about. Jesus bearing sin for us. And one goal of that, Peter says, was this, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That sin might no longer reign over us, but that we might begin to live new lives in Jesus. And this shows that Jesus not only bore the guilt of sin in his death, but he also took on its power. He came under its power in his death, but he overcame its power in his resurrection. The power of sin has been broken. And when we trust in Jesus, we are actually united to Jesus. And so we are united with him in his death as well. He died to sin's power, which means we died to sin's power. He now lives in righteousness. We can now live in righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. Not here meaning our bodies. It's not what Peter's talking about at this point, but our souls. We are healed in the sense that we have died to sin and now live to righteousness. In other words, Jesus gives us the power to live this life of suffering submission. Jesus not only gives us the power to live this life, he also gives us the hope to do it. You see, before we came to Christ, we were stray sheep, Peter says. We had wandering hands and wandering hearts, but now we have turned to Christ, the shepherd and overseer of our souls. 
And again, this, this is encouragement to suffer well. Why? Because Jesus is our shepherd and overseer. He is keeping watch over us. As the psalmist says, right, the Lord is my shepherd, which means, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because he is with me. The risen Christ who has conquered death is caring for us whatever trouble we may undergo. And as he entrusted his soul to his father, so we can entrust our souls to him to bring us through no matter what. Peter does call servants to be subject to their masters. That's not an endorsement of slavery, but it's a call to those under any economic authority and often in economic hardship or trial to willingly place themselves under authority. And what's more, if they cannot escape suffering, to endure it, following in the footsteps of Jesus, knowing that he is their shepherd and overseer and he will bring them through the valley, just as his father brought him through in the resurrection. This is our hope, and in this we endure. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we, like Peter, want to say, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never be. We want to rightly meditate on the resurrection, but often ignore the cross and the suffering that comes before it. But you call us to take up our crosses and to follow you. So we pray that you would give us the hope and the power of your spirit necessary to do just that, to take up our cross and follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.